Hello everyone, welcome to the Energy Mix episode 14. Uh, we're here today with the Solar Trade Association who uh, represent the UK solar industry and Barney's going to introduce our two great guests from the SDA. Yeah, welcome Gemma and Nick. Uh, we're joined by, um, by, by, by uh, two policy analysts from the SDA. Um, great to have you on. Just great to as, be here. Yeah, yeah thanks. Uh, just as a quick way of introduction, uh, Gemma um, uh, holds a BA from Durham University and an MSc in Public Policy from UCL. I didn't know you went yeah. Oh, very good. Which college? Uh, St. Aidan's. Where did oh, you never, go? Never mind. I was, I was at Treads. Oh, okay. Much <laughs> <laughs> better bar. On Sorry. the hill together. Yeah, on the hill together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during, during which her studies focused on regulation, climate change, and the media's influence on environmental behaviour. Welcome, Jenna. Um, and we're joined by Nicholas Gall, also a policy analyst at the STA. Uh, prior to joining the STA, Nicholas worked in policy analysis and advocacy at two leading Canadian environmental charities, and he completed internships at the International Energy Agency and the London Office of the Climate Policy Initiative. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Well, we're going to ask you to introduce briefly the Solar Trade Association, because not everyone might have heard of you. We've got people from abroad, so uh, what's the STA about? What does it do? Why, why, do, why should we be talking to you today? Yeah, I mean, we're an association, we represent solar and storage technologies from across the UK industry. We have over 180 different organisations who are members of ours, um, and these really, really range. Um, we've got, you know, installers, manufacturers, distributors, all, all the way up from your massive large-scale solar farms to your one-man band uh, domestic installers. So, yeah, we cover quite a huge range of policy issues. Do you want to add anything else? No, I think that's perfect, yeah. yeah. Great. I mean, I, I guess one of the main, I mean, I've, I've known you guys for a while, but I mean, it'd be great to know. I mean, the UK, it's super dark in Scotland. We've got super short <laughs> winter days. I mean, does solar really have a role in Britain in the future? Absolutely. Um, I thought you might say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so solar works in pretty much any environment. It works on Jupiter, for example. Um, but uh, the UK is, co counter to uh, popular belief, an excellent place to install solar. A lot of people think solar PV requires heat. That's not true at all. It actually works better in uh, uh, between 20 and 25 degrees Celsius. Um, it works quite well in the sort of flat, low overcast light that is quite prevalent in the UK. And um, the frequent rain is uh, actually very beneficial from an O&M or operations and maintenance standpoint for solar by keeping panels clean. Um, so one of the biggest cliches about this is uh, why not just put a whole bunch of solar in, in the Sahara Desert or something like that um, and then uh, have subsea cables moving the solar into Europe. I think that would actually be, I mean, it would probably work reasonably well, but uh, one of the advantages of solar is that it can be built right close to where people use the electricity and therefore minimizing uh, the losses in, in transmission. And, uh, and the UK is a wonderful environment in that respect for, for solar. And I think it's extraordinary the losses in transmission and distribution. I was looking at, at Bay's uh, Duke report and I think something like 50% of electricity is is parasitic parasitically lost through the, the transmission and distribution network uh, I, well that, that includes what you lose in the in the generating electricity itself so fuel converting to electricity yeah. in there mm. it's about six percent average from just in the network to, yeah but 
that represents, I, I think it's the half percent of UK carbon emissions is, is heating up cables in the network. That's wild. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. It's pretty significant, yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned subsea cables with the Sahara because there was a German plan, Desertec plan, a few years ago to do vast scale CSP and, and PV in North, North Africa. Obviously, the political situation stopped that happening. I think another thing that, that is a great advantage of PV in Europe is it's such a flexible... The layout is so flexible, so even small plots of land in Germany or England or France can have some mm. of PV yeah, widely installed. It doesn't have to be gigantic yeah. plots of land. And it could be a bit of marginal land the farmer doesn't use, and then he's got he or she's got a, an extra revenue yeah. stream. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's a criticism that we got maybe a lot pre-subsidy that it wasn't fit for the UK, and it's kind of tailored off since then because... I mean, we've got over 13 gigawatts now in the UK. I think over the last 12 yeah. months, we've supplied more than coal. That's right, 4% of electricity. Yeah. Coal's yeah. at 3.5, I think. Um, so yeah, it's been a huge success story and those kind of um, misinterpretations of what the technology can do have thankfully subsided somewhat. We were going to talk about UK policy and what you think it can do to support, but I guess... Where do you think it works best? I mean, are we talking about filling fields up with panels or are we talking about putting it on houses? Where, where would you like to see it go? I would say, well, as, as Barney alluded to, um, I think uh, the advantage of solar is that it's such an incredibly modular technology and it can be installed in so many different contexts. So, for example, um, I mean, ultimately we're going to need both, basically. I mean, we have a very clear net zero commitment, legally binding, um, and I think all our energy policy has to be oriented toward that. So I think where solar makes sense, that's where it should be. So for example, a, a large um, airstrip or a, a landfill site or some sort of other marginal farmland, fill it with solar, absolutely. If you have a, a large south facing uh, rooftop or even east or west facing, why not put solar? Um, and I think the remarkable cost decreases that we've seen over the past decade uh, are really going to, to make that possible. Just as a, as a plug for our old employer, Solar Century, I saw a great <laughs> article by a person from Solar Century about biodiversity and that, that, that I had never even thought of this. And as a project manager at Solar Century, we obviously had to do seed mixes that the, that the planning consent conditions required. But in a way, when it's done properly, um, utility-scale solar can enhance rural biodiversity. Absolutely. Um, and and it's, it's just really interesting that there's sometimes these consequences, um, especially in a context where, like, I believe bee populations are under extreme pressure. So that's right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's really exciting research going on um, that we're um, really interested in at the STA on... Uh, specifically with bees, the extent to which having a solar farm with, with resident um, pollinator populations can actually improve the productivity of surrounding agriculture. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot more of those sort of synergies with sustainable agriculture, uh, habitat for wildlife, habitat for, for plants and, uh, and other biodiversity on solar sites. I mean, obviously the UK is very land-constrained country um, and it's really important um, that we, we make the most of farmlands and and our natural spaces as well 
And I think there's a lot of underrated synergies there for solar. And so we, we actually just produced a report on this quite recently on the natural capital value of solar. And it's been really interesting um, highlighting the really great work that our members are doing in that area. So is that, I mean, does, does the policy support that? So historically, the UK solar industry has been built on subsidy. It's been about spend some money and, and just leave the asset for 25 years earning cash. Are we... Have we got a policy environment that supports solar going forward, but also improving the solar that we have already, getting it more biodiverse, increasing the performance, or whatever that is? Yeah, I mean, uh, this was uh, totally a consequence of the way the former subsidy framework was set up, was with the, the renewable obligation certificates, the rocks. You were basically rushing to get a plant uh, finished and connected to the grid before March 31st of each year, because for the subsequent financial year, your subsidy would go down. So that contributed to, uh, frankly, and this is quite regrettable for the industry, I think a lot of sites being really rushed um, and as a result perhaps poorly built. Um, you're no longer seeing that. I mean, there's, there's no way um, that a solar site is going to be built in the UK these days if it's not to the utmost high standards of, uh, of uh, uh, consciousness for the local community, um, and increasingly, um, what we're seeing from our members is their uh, investors are demanding really, really high standards for maintaining biodiversity and, and providing habitat enhancements on the site. And that's also a condition in many cases to get the approval of the local community as well to, to get the project approved. It's also coming through on the rooftop side. So in the spring statement, there was a policy, uh, I think, announced that asked all uh, developments coming forward to be biodiversity net gain. So that obviously affect, affects buildings. Um, and so there are companies now looking into the synergies between uh, having PV on your roof and whether you can have uh, green roofs as well. And they do actually, in some circumstances, work quite well. So yeah, we're, we're hoping to tie into the biodiversity report that we've done it on large scale with that as well. So why don't we see solar on every new roof in England right now? Why, why is that not? Why is the policy not enabling that? Because our building regulations are terrible. We had a wonderful zero carbon homes policy, I think, way back in 2015, um, which really, really was going to improve the energy efficiency standards and the quality of the homes being built. But that unfortunately got scrapped. And since then, there's been no kind of national leadership in the building regulations space since. Um, and what we are seeing actually is the leaders in the space are the devolved administrations, such as Scotland, who have mm. higher building regulations already. Um, and we're hearing from our members that as many as 80% of new builds homes being built there um, have solar on them. And we also did a piece of work on local authorities. So we issued a freedom of information request to all local authorities across the UK, asking them which, had, which ones had gone over and above the national building regulations issued by government. And we found that over half had, which is a phenomenal amount. And many of them are stipulating that they want renewables on site. So it can be done. The developers don't always shy away from saying that you know they won't build new houses if that's that's what's going to be implemented um, and we really hope that the part l building regulations that's being issued this year takes that into account and reflects that on is that i mean is, is and you, you talked about standards as well i mean is, is in an industry that has sort of developed so quickly 13 gigawatts in eight years is that right yeah yeah, yeah exactly much, yeah. yeah i mean how, how do you how does the industry going forward lay out the standards it needs to ensure quality and consumer protection and, and, and safety, etc.? 
Well, um, on the on the ground mount solar side, I mean, we, we have had to be very proactive about this as an industry. Um, and a huge part of that has been our ongoing collaboration with our colleagues in Solar Power Europe on developing uh, best practice guidance on operations and maintenance. And the UK um, has some incredibly innovative companies in this space. Um, our members who have been remarkably proactive about uh, promoting good practice among themselves and developing developing that guidance and sharing it with each other. And I think that's really helped to drive the industry forward. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of in, in my role at the STA is um, having some oversight of that process. On the domestic side, it was uh, somewhat easier because the government thought with them issuing a subsidy that there should be certain standards to installations going in. Um, so there was the MCS standard kind of tied in with the fit for its duration. Um, so there's always been a kind of base level standard that we've had on the rooftop side, which I think will help moving things forward. And as long as the industry keeps engaging on these topics and sees the importance of um, having high quality installations moving forward, which they definitely do now. I mean, the ones, the companies who are involved in the solar industry now are the ones that have survived the fit roller coaster and all of the boom and bust cycle of policy that we've seen. They want this to be seen as a positive technology. They want it to be installed to the best standard. So we just need to keep working together to ensure that those continue. So according to the uh, Committee on Climate Change, something like four gigawatts a year of, of wind and solar need to be deployed to get to net zero by 2050. Mm. Yeah. So I, I guess that's a, a vast amount of capital to be allocated. And I wonder what your thoughts are on if you, if you had a meeting with the Prime Minister, <laughs> what policies would you say, Prime Minister, you must do these in order to mobilise capital to, to start investing in, in solar in the UK? Because, as, as we've mentioned, it's, it's slowed down quite a lot. Oh, massively. Yeah, and I think the clearest, um, the, the most obvious sort of slam dunk here would be uh, to allow solar and onshore wind to access the CFD um, because currently they're paradoxically excluded on the basis that they're already established technologies and as the most affordable technologies uh, they don't need this um, this vital support mechanism and so instead the public are left paying for uh, costlier offshore wind. Now I'm, I'm a huge fan of offshore wind, I think it's an excellent technology but in order to have um, a balance of different variable generation sources for uh, the benefit of, of the overall network and security of supply and lowest cost for consumers. I think we need the right technology in the right place. And there are many, many places across the UK where uh, subsidy-free solar and onshore wind um, could deliver better value. They just need um, a price floor mechanism of the kind that the CFD would offer, and that would unlock enormous amounts of, of private sector capital. And, and that's recognising these are really capital intensive assets. They like are, offshore yeah, wind, You need yeah. some revenue security to get the investors in. Right? Precisely. And, and this is something the CCC has consistently called for, um, is just ending this, uh, frankly, quite, quite prejudiced exclusion, I would say. And it ultimately, it comes down to, I believe, uh, a fear among conservative politicians that um, that these technologies are unpopular with voters. And I mean, that's that's not something we're seeing in, in the data, not even among conservatives. Um, the Conservative Environment Network 
uh, recently did some research, some internal polling, and they found that uh, something like 80% of self-described conservative voters would want to see more solar and onshore wind. Uh, among the general public, it's closer to 90%, I think. Yeah, sure. But these are, these are very popular technologies. So if we look back over the solar industry, and I've been looking forward to this question, what are the successes, if you could name one success each in the industry and one massive failure? Not massive failure. <laughs> minor failure. One yeah, failure. Learning yeah. experience. Learning experience. I like that, yeah. yeah. What, what would it be? And Gemma, would you like to go first? Um, I just love the diversity that you can apply solar with. Like if you want to reduce your electricity bills, you install solar. If you want to store it, you install solar. If you want to have peer-to-peer -peer trading scheme where you sell your excess electricity to your neighbor, you're going to need solar. If you want to go off-grid, it's solar. There's so many applications that we're seeing, especially now that the subsidy is gone. Um, and we're really you know, looking for what opportunities are there. There's so many applications to the technology. And I think the industry is now starting to fully recognize that, especially with the uptake for EVs. We're hearing now more and more that the customers looking to buy EVs look for EVs first and then they're like, oh, well, my electricity consumption is going to massively hike up with this. I'll have to install solar. So it's, yeah, just the diversity of it is fantastic. I just think that's such a beautiful idea as well. Just taking energy out of the sky and using it to drive your car. I mean, that's incredible. It's what a beautiful synergy of, of technologies. I think, yeah, we're, we're for sure going to see a lot more of that, I think. I mean, for my side, I would say the biggest triumph is just the fact that uh, that the industry has remained so resilient. I mean, we we obviously saw a huge building boom for large scale PV um, around 2014, 15, 16, fell off quite significantly. Um, but now it's picking up again. And a few of our members are proceeding with quite substantial, um, completely subsidy free sites just because the economics um, have, fall, have uh, improved to the extent that that's now possible. And that's really down to um, resilience and, and creativity of this sector and, and willingness to get the job done. So there are two big pros. Uh, <laughs> learning experiences, I mean, Gemma, what do you think that the biggest learning is? I think going back to the point we were making about standards beforehand, because of the subsidy regime where it was such a generous fit before, um, that attracted in some types of uh, companies who perhaps weren't installing with the best intentions that they could have been. And I think the industry and the government and all of those involved in consumer protection could have been a lot harder in terms of clamping down on those types of organisations, not doing a proper job, not installing with the best interests of the consumer at heart. And so we, are, we have seen cases of mis-selling, which is really unfortunate for such a fantastic technology. And our reputation has sometimes been damaged by that kind of organization getting involved in the industry. So I think with the FIT scheme, there could have been much tighter enforcement on those standards. On the large scale side, I guess similarly, I think there has been, um, like at the height of, of, the, of the ROC program, as I was describing, when you were just really rushing to get those projects completed, there were, I would say, frankly, lower standards. Um, and I think, a lot of projects um, that perhaps uh, alienated local communities in a way um, and I think gave the industry a bad reputation. Um, they, were, uh, they were rushed and, uh, and it, it, I think 
what we're what we're going to see um, in this new subsidy free era is is an end to that, frankly, and a move toward um, really, really rigorous community engagement and uh, and much higher standards around protecting the natural environment and just promoting all of those potential synergies I was I was describing earlier with uh, with sustainable agriculture and with biodiversity. So the UK, I mean, the UK solar industry, as I as I understand it, is a uh, you know most panels are produced in Germany, uh, sorry, in China. Yeah, for sure. In, uh, yeah, and same with inverters, framework, etc. What what's the UK got to export here? What's the I'm trying to wear my uh, talking to the new government. Yeah, no, it, there's um, the UK is in my view incredibly underrated as a a, a real hotbed of solar innovation. Um, so Gemma and I, uh, we were at, at Loughborough University recently where they're doing incredibly innovative um, stuff with uh, cadmium telluride coatings on PV to improve durability and performance. Uh, we've got Oxford PV uh, who are really leading globally on the development of perovskite solar, uh, which is a very new technology and everybody was, I, there was a lot of uh, it was, it was quite dismissed in the industry until relatively recently. But just this week, they've announced that they're going to move forward with manufacturing it. Um, so there's a lot of really, really significant developments that are just only gathering steam. Um, and, uh, and Pilkington Glass, mm-hmm. uh, UK manufacturer, very legendary, going back to the 19th century. Um, they are leading on the development of, of new PV technology. Um, so there, the UK has, I would say, tremendous expertise to, to export, even if we aren't massively manufacturing modules here. So you think it's, it's the expert, so we're, we're exporting expertise and knowledge rather than product? I think, I think that would be a fair assessment, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Potentially, uh, potentially licenses to manufacture. Um, do, do you think that... that yeah, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's really interesting stuff happening on uh, building integrated PV here as well that could be mm. widely yeah, exported. Um, and I, I think um, these accomplishments really need to... We need to do a better job, frankly, of, of championing them. Uh, because I'm, I'm not sure people really understand. One of the consequences of, of how much the price of modules has gone have gone down is just that so much more of the value chain is now in, in knowledge and in the ability to develop and to put those modules to use effectively. And, uh, and that's really being led right here in the UK. And in, in some cases, uh, leveraging the, the, the Commonwealth connection. So Solar Century again is a good example with, uh, with its, its projects in Kenya, now potentially in West Africa as well. And that's on the basis of the learnings of rooftop solar uh, being applied to businesses in in Africa, Solar Aid is another good example. That's right. Great yeah. post today that they've 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 um, sold their two millionth solar lamp. Oh, that's oh, wow. excellent! Fantastic. Yeah. Good for them. Story. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, awesome. I mean, I I mean that's a great way to end the podcast. I think. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. Thank I, you. I, yeah. I'd love to have you on again. Uh, yeah. Maybe in a It'd year. It'd be a pleasure. Okay. Yeah. And actually, if we do one in a year, I'd like to I'd like to know will we get four gigawatts of solar and wind and onshore wind in the next year, or do you think? Let's hope. What's, what's yeah. Your time? <laughs> um, I think I think maybe four hundred megawatts is achievable. Certainly, of solar. Mm. Yeah. Right. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll put money on it there. Okay, yeah. well, if it's 400 megawatts yeah. this time next year, I'll Let's buy you a beer. Sounds good. That's, All right. that's the strike price. And <laughs> yeah. 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 Pay out in beers one way or the other. I like it. 
Cool. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.